Why do people reject the Bible's message? Perhaps you've recently become a Christian and you've enthusiastically shared the gospel with those closest to you uh, and you've done so thinking that, that all they need to do is understand it and then they'll believe it just as you have. And sometimes they do, but many times they don't. Or they've been interested perhaps and they've come to church for a while but then they've fallen away and it can be so hard to understand. For you this message is everything. It has changed your life. It has opened your eyes to true reality. How can it be possible for someone else to hear it and either reject it entirely or else to listen for a while and then to walk away from it. Maybe you wonder, is there something wrong with the message? Maybe if we changed the message, they might be more likely to stick around. What's going on? Well, Acts chapter 3 and the chapters that follow, they help us wrestle with some of those questions, which aren't just theory for them, because as we think of these questions, we think of, of real, real people, real people that we have shared the gospel with, real people who have perhaps sat in pews in this church or in, in another church. And so these chapters help us as we wrestle with those questions and they also show us why it would be such a catastrophe for us to, to change our message to try and make it more attractive to people. And so our first point this morning is the gospel is not what people think they need but it's beyond their wildest dreams. Uh, the gospel is not what people think they need but it's beyond their wildest dreams. Have you ever been interrupted on your way to church? Some of us find that that can happen on a Wednesday morning on our way to Bible studies. Someone st stops to chat to us or, or ask us where we're going. And sometimes we're maybe talking to someone and we can be thinking, well, well I'd love to talk longer, but I have to get the Bible study on time. Whereas actually if you have a chance to talk to someone about the gospel, it's okay to be five or ten minutes late for Bible study. Uh, this is just by the way, but, but I always remember Ted Donnelly who was uh, principal of the Theological College in Belfast. Uh, in earlier years he was a minister in Cyprus uh, and one night their, their next door neighbour who they'd been trying to witness to for ages had some crisis in her life uh, and she came to them for help. Uh, and, and he said, I'm really sorry we can't help I've got to go and take the prayer meeting and he always regretted it just some food for thought and I say that because here in chapter 3 Peter and John are interrupted on their way to church they're going to the temple at the hour of prayer at 3 in the afternoon and they see a lame man being carried we're told that he's been lame from birth it's a society without any disability benefits and he's been brought there to beg from the people going to the temple. And when this man sees Peter and John there's only one thing he wants from them and that's money. And that's not because uh, there's anything uh, particularly materialistic about him. 
but it's because this man would have accepted a baseline level of misery that he has given up on ever changing and he's simply asking for handouts uh, to make his life a bit more comfortable or even to preserve his life a little longer. And is that not where most people in our society are at today? I don't mean that they're on the street begging, but I mean that most people have accepted a baseline level of unhappiness and are just trying to make their lives a little more comfortable. People's goals are to endure the week, to enjoy the weekend before going back to the drudgery and living for the next holiday. Their ambitions are just a bit more money, a bit bigger of a TV, a redecorated house. They'll say, don't try and talk to me about Jesus or eternal life because that's not what I need. All I need is to be a bit more comfortable. All I need is to be able to retire a few years earlier or get a better pension or live out my remaining years in a bit more comfort. The sort of absolutely radical life change that the gospel offers both for this world and the next, it just isn't on people's agendas. Imagine you could have gone to this leper the morning uh, before he met Peter and John. He meets them three o'clock in the afternoon. Imagine you can go to him in the morning and you ask him, what's, what's the best thing you could receive today? Would that lame man have said that the best thing he could receive is being able to walk? I don't think so. Because he had been lame from birth. Being able to walk wasn't even on his agenda. If you'd asked him what the best thing he could receive that day was, his answer would have been in terms of money or comfort. Maybe being given so much money that, that he would never have to beg again. Perhaps a rich person taking pity on him and bringing, them, bringing him to live in their house. That's what hitting the jackpot would have looked like for him. He wouldn't have mentioned being able to walk because that just wasn't possible. And if someone did come to him and start talking about healing, he would have thought they were crazy. He wouldn't have listened. And when Peter and John stop and look at him, we're told that he expected to receive something from them. And that's purely in monetary terms. He expects to receive money from them. But here's the point. They don't give this man what he wants. They don't give him what he thinks he needs. They don't give him what he wants. They don't give him what what he thinks he needs. And why? Is that because they're cruel? Is that because they're heartless? Well, no, it's because they have the ability to give him something far, far better. They can give him the ability to walk. Though, of course, to be clear, it's not actually them who are doing the healing. It's Jesus' work through them. The lame man's healing is the work of the risen Jesus by his spirit in the name of Jesus Christ of Lazarus uh, of Nazareth rise up and, and walk so Peter and John don't give the man what he's asking for 
But instead, they give him something beyond his wildest dreams. And and you see that that's exactly what we're offering people in the gospel. We're not giving people what they think they need. But we're giving them something far better. So what do people in our culture think they need? What do the people around us think they need? Uh, maybe what do, what do some of us here think we need? Well, earlier I gave the example of a more comfortable life. Like this man, they, they want more money. and They know the church isn't going to give them that, and so they're not interested. Other people think that what they need is a, is a less chaotic lifestyle. that They want to get uh, their, their lives on the straight and narrow. Uh, now, if someone trusts in Jesus, chances are that, that over time their life will become less chaotic. But that's not the starting point. But look at how the gospel is described in the very last verse of the chapter. Verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. God raised up his servant, that is Jesus, to turn every one of you from your wickedness. If someone came up to you on the way home from church and they said, just stop a moment, I want to bless you. I want to do something to bless you. What would you be thinking would happen next? Well, we might expect it to be that they might slip us some money, they might give us some food or even just a word of encouragement. But we don't tend to think that someone might bless us by turning us from our wickedness. By nature, we don't see being turned from our wickedness as a good thing. We don't see it as a blessing. In fact, we don't even see our wickedness as wickedness. We say to err as human, we all make mistakes, but, 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 but I'm certainly not wicked. I think how offensive it would have been to tell these ultra-religious first century Jews that they were wicked. And the gospel is still offensive. Because it tells us that we're not actually okay the way that we are. And so by nature the gospel isn't what we want. And it's not what people around us want either. So the constant challenge for any church is, do you change the message to give people what they want, or at least what they think they want? Or do you keep offering them what they don't think they need, knowing that it is actually their deepest need, and it is actually beyond their wildest dreams? Imagine if Peter and John had had money in their pockets and imagine they'd given it to the leper. Would that have been a kind thing to do? No, not if they actually had the power by Jesus' spirit to, to make him walk. In fact, it would have been criminal. They could have put a big smile on his face. They could have given him a big donation. But it would have been criminal When you see how the story ends, it would have been absolutely criminal for Peter to have given him money. It would have been the most unloving thing in the world for them to have met this man's felt need and yet leave him no closer to salvation. To meet his felt need 
when actually they had the power to meet a far deeper need. If you know how the story ends, it changes everything. And as Christians, we know how the the ultimate story ends. We know the amazing future that God has in store for those who come to him through Jesus. And we also know the terrible judgment that they will face if they continue to reject him. But most of those around us don't know how the story ends. And so our refusal, refusal to meet their felt needs seems unloving. When we say... We, we may help you practically, but we're not just going to give you handouts. Or when we say, well, we're not actually going to endorse your lifestyle. When we say, if you come to church, you're not just going to hear a 10-minute talk about how we should all be nice to each other. You're going to hear what God himself says. <laughs> Part of which is actually that we need to be far more than nice to each other. We have to sacrificially love each other. We have to love the unlovable at times. But we have a message that, that people are not going to like, at least initially. In fact, they'll probably be offended by it. None of it sounds loving. Why can't you just give people what they're asking for? But actually, if we know that infinite joy is on offer, then to, to, to leave people with anything less than that, to offer them anything less than that would be a very cruel thing to do. As Christians and churches, we're called to say hard things to people at times because their eternal happiness is more important than their immediate happiness. Their eternal happiness is more important than them not being offended. And even now, the Christian life is the greatest life that there is. (coughs) So the gospel is not what people think they need, and yet it is beyond their wildest dreams. And that's what Peter goes on to explain in the sermon that follows. And that is the main event of this chapter. Because in it, Peter explains what has just happened. In the first half of this chapter, to to use the title of the book, we have an act of, of the apostles. But it's very much like a support act for a concert. The sermon is the main event. Because the greatest hope of Christianity isn't about trying to make this world better. But the great hope of Christianity is that one day this world will be remade. And the healing of the leper is simply a foretaste of that. And the sermon spells it out. So the gospel isn't simply lifestyle transformation. It's an entrance into a whole new life through having our sins forgiven and our relationship with God restored. But people reject it because it's not what they think they need. If only they could see. The second stumbling block to people becoming Christians in the first place or to people continuing on in the Christian life is the claim that Jesus is the only way. So secondly this morning, saying that Jesus is the only way isn't going to be popular. 
saying that Jesus is the only way isn't going to be popular. We see this in chapters 4 and 5. So far in the book of Acts, we've seen two responses to the gospel message. We've seen that some believe, but others mock. Belief and mockery. But soon we can add persecution to the mockery. In chapters 4 and 5, the apostles are arrested twice. In chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested and then released. And then in chapter 5, all the apostles are arrested And people are ready to kill them before a Pharisee called Gamaliel intervenes. So instead they're beaten and released. But but we see here that it doesn't take long for persecution to start. And what is at the heart of this first round of persecution? What is it that brings it on? Well, in chapter 4, verse 2, it's preaching about the resurrection. It's striking how big a theme the resurrection is in the apostles' preaching. More so than, I think, in in really any preaching today. It is a, a corrective for those of us who are preachers to go back to Acts and, and just see what a big deal they made of the resurrection. It's interestingly as well that the people who are greatly annoyed in verse 1 of chapter 4 are the Sadducees. Uh, Maybe you've come across this name Sadducees as you've been reading the Bible and you wonder who, who who these people are. Well the Sadducees were a category of Jews who didn't believe in life after death. Theirs was a religion that was only for this life. It was about living a good, moral, respectable life now, but they didn't believe there was anything more than that. Not unlike many churchgoers in Scotland. They go to church because they think it gives them a sense of respectability, but deep down they don't really believe that there's anything more than this life. So persecution comes to the early Christians because they're preaching the resurrection And also verse 12, because at the centre of their message is that Jesus is the only way to God. And that has always led to outrage, if not open persecution. Just look at verse 12, there's no getting around it. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The apostles weren't saying, look, believing in Jesus gives us meaning to our lives, but but for you it might be something different. (laughs) Not a bit of it. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. To say that there is another way devalues the cross. It's to look at the suffering of Christ on the cross and to say, well, that's all really nice and that but but it wasn't really necessary because there's another way to God people say to us well I'm glad that you're now going to church and I'm glad that believing in Jesus makes you happy but I'm following a different path that's that's okay for you but I've got my own way and maybe in a sense we're we're glad that they're not openly mocking us but mostly we are just grieved because they see Jesus as just one religious option among many. 
And if we try and say that to them, they won't be happy. If we want to believe in Jesus ourselves, that's fine. But to say that other people have to, well, that's something else altogether. How can we be so arrogant and try and try and impose our views on others? Have you ever thought about the fact that, that at election time, no one ever says, well, maybe they're all just right. Yes, I've looked at their voting records in Parliament and they voted the opposite way, but... but Sure, they're, they're, all, they're all right. I'll vote SNP uh, and you can vote Tory. But they're all just different names for the same thing. They're all equally valid. People don't do that when it comes to politics. And yet when it comes to things of eternal significance, they're happy to say, well, whatever works for you. There's no right or wrong answer to these questions. Sometimes people try to claim that the apostles, and particularly the apostle Paul, took the, the, the teaching of Jesus and messed it up. But what are the apostles doing here? Well, they're simply taking the teaching of Jesus and preaching it. We looked a few weeks ago at Jesus' claim. It's a verse that some of the boys and girls have memorized. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus had said that, the apostles knew it, and here they're simply preaching it. And yet opposition comes. So we see opposition in chapters 4 and 5. Twice the apostles are, are arrested. But is it all bad news? Is it all doom and gloom? Well, not a bit of it. Because something else we need to see in these chapters is that while persecution is a reality in the book of Acts, the gospel continues to spread. In chapters 4 and 5, the apostles are released after they're arrested. Later on, Peter will be freed from prison by an angel. What's the lesson of these things? Well, it's no guarantee that if anything bad happens to us for proclaiming the gospel, that God will deliver us. But the big picture of the book of Acts is that suffering can't stop the spread of the gospel. That's how the whole book ends. Paul is under house arrest uh, and yet he has freedom uh, to, to, to spread the word unhindered. How does Acts chapter 5 end? A chapter which, which by the way looked like it could be the end for the apostles and the whole Christian church. As it so often does, it looks like the Christian church is maybe hanging by a thread. But how does, how does the chapter end? Chapter 5, 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And that's really the story of Acts. The gospel continues to spread despite suffering. Why? Because God is sovereign. At times Christians talk as if the church is doomed and as if God couldn't possibly have anticipated some of the challenges we're facing. But the book of Acts is the perfect tonic to that sort of thinking. Because it reminds us that despite what it might look like, at times God is in control and despite the suffering and opposition, the gospel will continue to spread. So firstly, this morning the gospel 
isn't what people think they need, but it's beyond their wildest dreams. Secondly, saying that Jesus is the only way isn't going to be popular. But remember, persecution can't stop the growth of the church. But then thirdly and finally, uh, and sadly, particularly in, verse, in chapters 5 and 6, we see that the biggest threats to churches come from the inside. The biggest threats to churches come from the inside. The events, the events of Acts chapters 1 and 2 that we looked at last week can only be explained by the reality of the Holy Spirit. What happens in chapters 4 through 6 can only be explained by the reality of the devil. Now don't get me wrong, as we've seen, God is still at work in these chapters. The word of God continues to spread. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit is more powerful in chapters 1 and 2 and the devil is more powerful in chapters 4 to 6. But what we do see, particularly in 4 to 6, is that the waves of opposition just keep coming And one of the things that these chapters teach us is that Satan's attacks come in different forms. In chapter 4 and in the second half of chapter 5 we see opposition from the world. We see attacks from outside the church. And that's probably what naturally comes to mind when we think of opposition to the gospel. When we hear the phrase opposition to the gospel, we tend to think of people from outside the church wanting to silence our message. We think maybe of what the Scottish Parliament will debate on Tuesday. That could mean that that many sermons and prayers that have been, been offered in this place down through the years would be deemed illegal going forward. But at the beginning of chapter 5, Satan has a different tactic. His tactic there involves false believers within the church. A couple called Ananias and Sapphira lie to the apostles, claiming that they are giving away all the money for a field that they've just sold to the church when they're only giving away part of it. Other people in the church are being generous because the gospel causes us to hold loosely to the things of this world. Uh, it's, it's a good test as to whether we've genuinely believed the gospel. Are we still holding tightly to the things of this world, the things that we think we're entitled to, or do we hold them loosely? But this couple aren't actually believers themselves, and yet they still want to be seen as generous, because who doesn't? So they try and fake it. And Peter puts his finger on what's behind it in chapter 5, verse 3. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So that's a second form of Satan's attack. But in chapter 6, having tried attacks from the outside, having tried to use fake believers within the church, Satan now tries to stop the spread of the gospel through infighting within the church. So the first verse of chapter 6 is actually Satan's third attempt to destroy the church. It is his most subtle effect and usually his most effective. Satan isn't mentioned in chapter 6, but that's just because he's subtle. This is different from the Ananias and Sapphira incident because there's no suggestion that any of those involved in chapter 6 aren't Christians. 
But still, we can be sure that Satan is wanting to use this dispute to derail the church and to distract it from its mission. We don't have time this morning to get into the details of what the dispute in chapter 6 was over, uh, other than to say it was about the daily distribution of food. But the big thing to see is that this is a dispute within the church which Satan is just waiting to exploit. When I preached on this passage, I entitled it How to Kill a Church. It was actually a title borrowed from the, the Aberdeen IPC minister, where we're going to be as a family next Lord's Day. How to Kill a Church. But the important thing to notice is that nobody in chapter 6 has any intention of killing a church. The apostles don't as they find themselves swamped in administration. The widows don't as they mother about others getting preferred over them. No one in the passage wants to kill the church apart from the one person who isn't mentioned, Satan. He wants to kill the church and this is precisely the sort of situation he just loves to exploit. He loves to see Christian believers act in such a way that would throw petrol on the flames rather than water. And we need to be far more aware of that than we probably are. As Christians we're pretty good at being aware of threats from the outside. The government clamping down on Christian freedoms, uh, perhaps opposition we face in the local community, things our neighbours might say to us, uh, things we might face in work for being a Christian. But actually far more churches are destroyed from the inside than the outside. Persecution from outside tends to strengthen the church if anything, but infighting chokes it. The situation in Kiev at the moment is dire. But at least the Ukrainian army can see the tanks coming. They know where they are. They can prepare for the attack. Whereas it's far harder to defend the city against any Russian spies that may have already infiltrated the city. It's a lot easier for cities to defend themselves against attacks from the outside than from the inside. And it's the same within the church. As Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And yes, sometimes attacks from inside can be in the form of false teaching, designed to lead people away from the truth. But often attacks from the inside aren't attacks at all, or at least they're not intended to be. One person overlooks something that someone else does or, or says or does something insensitive. The other person reacts badly by interpreting it in the worst possible light uh, and usually by giving off about it behind their back long before they, they go and raise it with the other person if they raise it at all. Uh, other people perhaps start murmuring about it and before you know the whole thing has, has blown up, people have taken sides and the church can forget about trying to reach the world for Jesus. People are so consumed by the internal struggle that even if an unbeliever did walk in to the church, they could cut the tension with a knife. Never mind that a church that is consumed by infighting will be distracted from its true priorities. Uh, 
And that's what's happening in chapter 6. It's a distraction from the preaching of the word. Infighting in the church, people falling out with one another, tensions between people. In one sense, it's not an attack. But actually, it is an attack because that's what Satan wants to use it for. The book of Acts is all about the spread of the gospel. And that's the one thing above all Satan wants to stop. So he will use whatever means he can to try and do that. If outward attacks don't stop the work of the church, he'll use fake believers on the inside. And if that doesn't work, he'll try and get brothers and sisters in Christ taking sides against one another. As long as it distracts people from sharing the gospel, he'll be happy. I preached on Acts chapter 6 three months before COVID hit. And COVID showed the tragic truth of all this. It showed that division inside churches is far more deadly than attacks from the outside. What damage has government opposition done to churches in the UK in recent years? Hardly anything. And yet you have congregations across the UK today that are still bitterly divided because people had very different views on lockdowns, masks, singing in church and so on and so on. Relationships between people in churches which unless God is gracious are in danger of being irreparably damaged. Now by God's grace we here were spared much of that. But in other places, ministers have resigned over it, elders have resigned over it, people have left churches over it. The impact of COVID will be felt in some churches for years to come if they even survive. And not not the impact of the the virus itself, uh, but the impact of the division that it brought to churches. The damage done to churches by division on the inside is far greater than damage done by attacks from the outside a critical spirit murmuring gossip on the inside far more devastating than anything persecution can do and yet and yet even here satan is ultimately unsuccessful the church takes action they appoint deacons in order to free the apostles up to focus on prayer and ministry of the word something we'd love to see happen here too Pray for deacons. And in verse 7, what happens? The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so, as we seek to reach out to this community with the gospel, there will be challenges. Challenges because people think they know what they need, and they don't think the gospel is it. Challenges in the form of opposition that will come when we say that Jesus is the only way to God. Challenges in the sad reality that there will be false believers within the church. And the biggest challenge of all, Satan's most effective attack, the potential of division among bodies of God's people. So how can we keep going in the face of all these challenges? Well, we can keep going in the confidence that the Lord Jesus is still at work in the world by his Holy Spirit. That he has promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
And that just as it is done from the Apostles' Day right down to our own day, the Gospel will continue to advance and bear fruit to the Father's glory. And there is nothing more exciting that we could possibly be involved in. Amen. Well, these chapters of God's Word, they they should sober us, but they should also encourage us. They should encourage us that God is still on the throne, that Jesus is still at work in the world by the Holy Spirit, and that despite Satan's best efforts, nothing can stop the advance of the gospel. And we turn to sing of that confidence now from the second psalm. Psalm 2 verses 1 to 4 on page 2. Psalm 2 verses 1 to 4 starting on page 2. In verses 1 and 2 the nations rage and the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and his Messiah, his Christ. And so what happens in verse 3? The nations are raging, they're trying to uh, they're trying to banish Christ. So what happens in verse 3? Does God wring his hands? No, God laughs. God laughs at their, their futile attempts. And as Martin Luther once said, Shall we weep and cry while God laughs? Shall we weep and cry while God laughs? Well, we do weep and cry, don't we, over the state of our communities, over the state of our nation. Uh, But that's not all we do. Because we go forward, yes, with our eyes open to the many dangers, toils and snares around us. But we also go forward with confidence. Because despite all the different attacks and discouragements, the gospel continues to advance. Uh, Psalm 2 verses 1 to 4, let's stand and sing praise.